Good morning. I know we're small, but I think that might be because I-10 is closed. And so I got a call telling me that someone was going to be late, and probably everyone who lives in Tempe will be late. So, yeah. Oh, well, so here you are, and that's God's will that you're here with me, and I'm glad. Um, Let's see, a couple of announcements. Um, Last week there were some handouts that I forgot to tell you about. And so you being the intelligent woman that you are, I'm sure you figured it all out. But um, there was a new schedule for Wednesday Wellspring that just was because that was revised. And um, I think we changed when spring break was. And so that won't affect most of us. But just in case you were looking at the Wednesday schedule to make up a lesson that you missed or something like that, you've got the correct dates for that. And then you also received a sample prayer And that's just there as a tool for you because sometimes just the idea of coming to God's Word to meet with Him, like you're actually shepherding your heart because you're meeting with the God of the Word, is just a a really new way of coming to the Word. If if you've been reading the Word all your life, but it's been been just a book you're reading. And so that prayer is something that um, Scott Maxwell wrote. It's not, you all probably know this, it's not something to use um, as a formula not like a magic charm or something like that. You just say the words and your time with the Lord with the Lord will just be great. But <laughs> but it helps you, um, helps all of us just understand. It gives us a picture of the kind of heart we want to be working at, bringing to the Word of God, helping us understand um, what that heart looks like. So um, just use it. It's a tool just to help you in that as well. Um, And then this is October 1st, so the first time we met, the assignment was by October 1st was to have your reading plan picked out. So hopefully you all have that, and hopefully you've started. If you haven't, you're still not behind. You can go home today, and you can pick that reading plan, and you can get started on that. Um, And I just, this is something that I wanted to, it's just a little nuance of the reading plans. If... Getting four chapters a day read is you're just really a little nervous about that, or you're really having a hard time focusing and bringing your heart to meet with God when you read that much. I would encourage you to pick one of the plans that only goes through everything in the Bible once, because there are several of the plans, like the McShane's plan. It's a great plan, but it takes you through the whole New Testament twice, and I think it takes you through all of Psalms and Proverbs twice, which is great. But if if, that, if you're having trouble with the four chapters a day, just start with something that's not quite, doesn't, doesn't take on quite as much. The other thing is that if you're having trouble digesting all of the reading plan in one sitting, maybe read part of it in the morning and then read part of it at your lunch hour or read part of it before you go to bed at night or part of it when you get home at the end of the day. Try dividing it up and maybe reading, maybe reading part of it if you have other people in your home, read part of it with them and part of it on your own, something like that. Um, and so we'll be talking more about that in our discussion time today. In fact, when you go to discussion time, feel free to um, share with one another what plan you've chosen or which plan you're using or what's going well or what's, what's hard about that for you and, and help each other with that. So uh, we will pray. And I just I wanted to um, let you know Mandy shared a prayer request with me that you know Valley is the high school where we meet. They're our gracious hosts. 
Um, and they had a football game last night, and one of their kids got seriously hurt and um, was in surgery till 2.30 this morning. And um, so he's in a coma. So we're, we're going to pray for him. Um, two of the men at our church coached that team, Derek Robinson and Lee Thompson. So they obviously have a, a real personal interest in, in Dylan. And since they are a host, we can just stand with them in prayer that way. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for providing us a way to come to you. Lord, we are not worthy. We don't deserve your attention or your affections, your mercy or your grace or your love or, or your covenant that you bound yourself with to, to all those who come to you through Christ. But we come thankfully that you have made a way and that you have placed the, us in Christ and that you receive us because we're clothed in his righteousness. And now you, you call us, you're chosen, and, and you call us holy, and you call us beloved. Thank you that we can come, and we can come be together this morning as, as women whom you've redeemed, and women whom you've placed in Christ, and you've knit together in this body at Grace Bible Church. Lord, we want your word to perform it's perfect work. We want you to do what only you can do with your word in, in our hearts this morning. Lord, we want to be more like Christ. We want to love you more. We want to know more of your love for us, that that would be what comes out of us, and that is what controls our thinking and our responses and our desires, our emotions. So, Lord, please... Let your spirit come and, and make your word fruitful in all of our hearts this morning to draw us nearer to you, to make us more like your son. Lord, we also lift before you um, this young man, Dylan. Oh, Father, our lives are a breath. Lord, we are thankful that you have all power in heaven and on earth and that you are able to heal this young man. I pray, Father that you would be at work in his body to restore him. Thank you, Father, for neurosurgeons who can go into brains and do things to save lives. But, Lord, you are the one who gives life. We pray that you'd be pleased to restore Dylan's health. And Lord, in the midst of that, how I pray that you would magnify yourself in the lives of his parents. Lord, I pray for Derek and Lee. Lord, I imagine they have probably up all night. And Lord, they have such an opportunity to minister to the other players and to minister to Dylan's family. Lord, I pray that they would draw near to you and minister to the, those around them with the comfort that they have received at the cross. Lord, I pray that you would use this in the lives of all the students here at Valley Christian. Lord, there may be many who are not born again. Lord, please use this to give them a clear understanding of where they stand with you and to draw them to salvation through Jesus Christ. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Okay. Grab your notebook. Turn it over. We're going to start by looking at the back of it again. You see there the Wellspring purpose. Our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Wellspring is all about teaching the women of Grace Bible Church to unite themselves around these biblical disciplines so that there's a common understanding among us when we talk about what it means to be a woman of God, when we talk about what it means to care for those around us, to be involved in ministry at Grace Bible Church so that our church can be effective with the gospel. See, our elders care about us and they want us to be built up. And they want us to be equipped to be used by God so that as the gospel goes deeper in our lives, it's also going deeper in our households, in our homes, in the lives of those around us, and then also in the life of our church. And so that takes us to discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. See, if the gospel is going to go deeper in our church and beyond our church, it takes us being godly women who know that we need to bring our heart to the word of God because we know that what our heart needs more than anything else is to meet with the God of the word. That's what discipline one is all about. And, and that's what we're going to keep talking about every time we meet because everything flows from discipline one. Even when we start t- teaching about discipline two, we're going to keep coming back and talking about discipline one because it all starts with how we're shepherding our hearts with God's word. And that's what makes the difference between somebody who just shows up on Sunday and the lady who's going to be effective um, in the lives of others, the lady that God is going to use. See, the godly woman understands the condition of her own heart and she loves God and she wants her heart to come closer to God through his word. And then as we do that, then we actually have something to say to the sheep that Christ died for, that he purchased with his own blood. And that's the woman that God wants to speak to his sheep, to come alongside and to encourage and to lift them up. That's the woman who is going to make an impact because her words and her life overflow with what Christ has done in her. The next discipline then is the home or our household. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. When you step into this woman's home, there's an aroma of Christ. It's a place where people are loved, where people are encouraged with the truth of God's word. They're encouraged with the gospel, with what Christ has done. There should be evidence in that household that a woman of God lives there, at least to the degree that she can have an impact. And we do have an impact, don't we? Maybe the question we just have to ask is what kind of impact we have. (laughs) See, we should be able to ask the people in our household you know, the people who were around more than were around anybody else and, and be able to ask them 
well, let's see, I didn't say that right. If I'm asking the people in your household, I should be able to ask, what is she like? If you're asking the people in my household, they should be able to ask, what is she like? You know, what if somebody was talking to, you know, your dad, your husband, <coughs> your kids? Right? What, what would they say? What, what is she like? Would they say that the gospel is so much a part of her, it's so much a part of her attitude, that that's what she comes to me with? That's what, that's what overflows out of her. <coughs> now, Barb Pagel was challenging me with this, and I said, okay, you can just stop right there. You can just stop right there, because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That's where it can be really convicting. Like, wow, is that, is that what the people in my house would say? I want them to say that. But that's why, that's why we have these disciplines. Keep them in front of us so we can grow in them. Now, if you live alone, you still have people in your family that you can care for who don't live with you. And the other aspect of using our home is to consider how that home then can become a place where we practice discipline three, ministry, inviting people into our home and, and giving them that opportunity to see what the gospel's done in your life and how it's given you a heart to love them. So then in discipline three is that with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. See, this woman is now equipped to effectively step into the lives of others with the gospel um, wherever she goes, with believers, with unbelievers, in her workplace, in the church. But there's an important order to this. See, too often we as women are really eager to get involved, especially at church. And we have a zeal to be used. We want, we want to be involved with people. We want to encourage people. But we're tempted to play leapfrog over two things, right? Our heart and our home. And when that happens, we might see women who are very busy caring for people outside their home, but... What happens at home? Maybe it's kind of chaotic. Maybe marriages are struggling. Maybe moms don't have time to spend with their own kids. And so that's why we need to be continually evaluating our own hearts. You know where we also need to evaluate is our calendar. See, because most of the time we look at our calendar and we think, it's fine. I can squeeze it all in. You take that calendar to your roommate your kids, your husband, and say, what do you think? You know, when I'm home, am I really home? Or am I distracted? Am I preoccupied? Am I busy with something else? And ask for that feedback. Um, and so that's why we start with discipline one, and we acknowledge, I'm a woman, I need to shepherd my heart. Um, and when we do that, then we are prepared to impact the people in our home and in our church. So when you came in, you should have gotten an assignment for next week. Looks like this. And on the back, there's a quote. If you were with, with us last year in Wellspring, you know that we handed out a quote each week. We're not doing that this year. But I put the quote on the back of the homework just because it's helpful. Um, it, gives us, it gives us a look at the Bible, how to think rightly about the Bible, what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. So I'm going to give you, you're going to just get to read that on your own. It might be helpful even for you to think about as you do your assignment. Um, but with that, we're going to move on to your outline. You should have gotten that when you came in. 
And it looks something like this. All right, your outline today says D1, the heart, a biblical survey of the heart. So today we're going to review what we talked about last time, and then we're going to change gears and take a look at the effect of pride on the heart, the danger that pride exposes our heart to. But first I want to share with you an illustration. If you were here last year, you heard this before, but I just love this illustration. I like stories. I like analogies. Um, And it's really helpful as we continue to try to understand rightly this relationship between the Word of God and the God of the Word. So, imagine, this isn't hard because you live in Arizona. You have to imagine that it's really hot. It's, It's really, really hot. See, Scott, when he wrote this illustration, he said 112. But when I tell stories, I like to exaggerate. Like, it's 125. (laughs) And you're out in the desert. And see, this is where you know that you haven't lived here very long because you're out in the desert by yourself. And you went hiking. And you ran out of water. And you somehow lost the trail. And Michaela's smiling. This is bad, right, Michaela? You don't want to do that. You're lost. You're lost. You're afraid to take a step in any direction because any direction you go could just very well take you farther from where you need to be. So you're hot. You're delirious. You've lost all sense of direction. Now, how important at that point is it to be rescued? It's important, right? It's everything. It's life and death. So that would be your one focus. That would be your one goal is to get rescued. Now, Let me just inject something that might seem kind of silly. You're sitting out there in the desert, and you're delirious, and you're dehydrated, and you're lost. But you have a satellite phone. Now, at that point, how important would that phone be? It'd be important, right? Okay, audience participation. You can speak up, okay? It would be everything because it would be a way to get in touch with your rescuer. It would be that one means to your one end. You need to be rescued, and that phone is what could get you rescued. So what do you do with that phone? You protect it. You cherish it. You guard it. You are not going to set it down and forget it. You're not going to drop it, hopefully. You're going to hang on to it because it is the only way you can get in contact with your rescuer. But now sometimes when something is really important, we forget that it's not the goal itself. So here's what I mean. Imagine you're out there in the desert and you pick up your satellite phone and you're so excited about your satellite phone that you start listening to music on it. <laughs> okay. Or you, you, you pull up a game. You start playing your favorite game on your phone. Now, see, that would be ridiculous, right, to play with your phone when you need to be rescued? That would be foolish. But that's what we do if we interact with the Word of God in such a way that we're not interacting with the God of the Word. It's like being in the desert listening to music on our phone, but not calling our rescuer. See, it's not okay to only come to the Word to get right answers, to get more knowledge, but not to meet with God. Do you see the difference? See, we have to shepherd our hearts out of that kind of thinking. See, the word is precious, but it's not our ultimate goal. God is. He's our goal. 
So discipline one is all about our heart getting near to its rescuer, near to its deliverer, to its savior. So we come to the word of God to meet with the God of the word, and we cherish our time with our precious savior. That has to be our one goal. And so the word is precious to us because it is our one means to our one goal. Like that phone, we're not going to neglect it, and we're not going to neglect God's word. We're going to cherish it, and we're going to honor it because it's how we draw near to our rescuer. So at Grace Bible Church, we could want to be women who are known as women of the word, who are all about the word, and that would be a good thing. But if we leave it there, we've fallen short because what we really want to be concerned about is are we women who know the God of the word? See, that's our goal. All right, so there we go for this year. We got that my favorite illustration in. Now pull out of your notebook or just open up to your notebook under heart. You have a page that says D1, the heart, the 856 occurrences of heart in the New American Standard Bible. So you can see there that it says that there are 856 occurrences of the word heart in the New American Standard Bible. I knew that because I put it there this morning. (laughs) Okay, so... I want to ask you, if you did not do Wellspring last year, or if you weren't here for this lesson last year in Wellspring, just shout out for me what some of your favorite books would be, some of your favorite books to read in the Bible. I call on you, Rachel. What's your favorite book to read? Psalms. Psalms. Okay, good choice. 126 occurrences of the word heart in Psalms. Somebody else? Holly. Proverbs, okay, 69. You guys are blowing my theory here. What else? (laughs) Who else? Who has a favorite New Testament book? Okay, even if you were here last year, tell me a favorite New Testament book that you like to go to. Ephesians, great. All right, nine occurrences of the heart in the book of Ephesians. Somebody else? Romans, great. 15 occurrences of heart there. I could barb on the spot and call on her, but I won't. (laughs) Barb, we are glad you're here. Oh, that's okay. All right, and Barb, would you introduce your, this is your sister? This is my sister, Ellen. Ellen? Your baby sister. It is so nice to have you here. And and I have to say, okay, everybody know that Barb's son got married last Woo! night? Yeah? Okay, so. Yeah, we're, on, we're running on two and a half hours sleep right now. So. Okay, so pass her some coffee. We're, we're good, right? Okay. All right, I want to hear one more person, your favorite go-to book in the Bible. Anybody? James? Okay, James. James has five occurrences of the word heart. Okay, boy, challenge. I can't remember really doing this, adding this time of the day. 28 plus 6 is, I don't know, 34. I should have I, uh, I should have had Mary do this. She's an engineer. I bet she could do this in her sleep. Okay, so if, if my math is right, and I don't know that it is, but I came up with something like 224 occurrences of the heart. So if oh, it's not uncommon for us to have half a dozen, five favorite books of the Bible that we, we kind of keep going back to. 
And you know, that is great. I want you to love the word. And I want you to have those go-to places where you go and, and you're encouraged and you're reminded what's true about God. And, and maybe you remember how God encouraged you in the past. So that's, that's all good. But if we only go to those books, we're only seeing those, those five that were read today. We're only seeing maybe a fourth of what God has to say about the heart. And so that's why we, we want to be looking at, at more of God's word. Take a look at, at your chart. Check out the book of Jeremiah. That's a prophecy book. 48 times God talks about the heart. Now, I don't know about you. I've even taught all this before, and that still surprises me, that God wants to talk about the heart when he's talking about judgment. Deuteronomy. Last week, we were in Deuteronomy a lot. 45 times God talks about the heart. Other books on here. Let's see. Um, Rachel said Psalms. Yeah, 126 times, which makes perfect sense, right? It's about worship. And what is worship but bringing your heart before God and acknowledging who he is? So this is not telling you, don't read your five favorite books. But this is just an encouragement to read your Old Testament, not to miss anything that God has to say about the heart. And so that's why that's the assignment, is to be reading all of God's words so that over the course of time we're seeing everything that God has to tell us. Um, particularly about his heart, about our heart. His heart, too, I guess, right? Okay. All right, so um, we are moving down on our outline. We're now at the review. So we're going to just quickly review what we talked about last time. And so, again, we want some audience participation. Let's say somebody asks us, what is the heart? How would you summarize what the heart is. Let's say they came to you and said, okay, you keep talking about the heart. What do you mean? Do you just mean like how I feel? Do you mean like, you know, like this, my hidden self, I need to cut somehow, you know, the hidden child within me, I need to let out? What, what is my heart? What would you tell somebody? What did we see last week? Soul. It's your soul, okay. The inner man. The inner man. God reveals himself. Michaela, are you saying something? All that, I am. All that you are, good. Anything else? Well, the point of God's evaluation of us. Yeah. That is the place where God evaluates. It's, it's you, right? It's me. It's who we are in the inner man. It's the focal place of, of God's evaluation of us. God does not neglect the heart. All right, so then um, question two, what is the condition of the heart? Just go ahead, throw out one-liners. What did we see last week from God's word? Hmm? Deceitful, wicked, the source, our source of defilement. What else? It's foolish. It plunges me into further spiritual darkness. It fails me. So we've got a serious problem, don't we? Um, on your notes, the reference for this is actually on the back, but I want to talk about it here. Um, turn to Genesis 6-5. Just in case I didn't convince you of the condition of the heart. I, you have heard this, maybe I think Smedley used this in a sermon not long ago, but I just uh, think this is really impactful to see how deeply embedded this heart problem is that we have. Genesis 6-5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. Do you see just how wicked man's heart is? See, God is saying that every intent of his heart, every intention, every planned purpose of his heart, there's nothing that doesn't have wickedness and evil all over it. Do you see those words? Every, only, continually. Do you see the emphasis? See, there is no part of the heart that's outside of this. Man's wickedness is primarily a heart problem. So, as you read through Genesis 6 and 7, maybe if you started a new Bible reading plan recently, maybe you've read those recently, you see the flood comes. And, you know, when you read, I just want to encourage you, put yourself there. Imagine that you are on the ark for 370-something days with a whole bunch of animals. Okay. (laughs) And it's raining a whole bunch of that time? Okay. But then finally the flood subsides. And in chapter 8, everybody comes out. So turn to chapter 8, verse 20. And it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is an act of worship. And after all they have been through, that is a really smart thing to do. And he took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Now, you'd like for the next sentence to say, because now he's so good, right? I've got just these eight people here, and they're my seed. We're going to have a good world now. But God can't say that. He says, for the intent of man's heart is evil. It's evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. See, during that moment of worship, God is stating what is still true about the human race. It's a repeat of what he said in Genesis 6-5. There are only eight people on the earth now. And he's saying to them, as you worship me, as you come off this boat, you come out of this judgment, out of this flood, there's still a problem. Man's heart is still evil. So the point is that the judgment of the flood didn't fix man's heart problem. We're left hoping for a better deliverance, for a rescuer, right? Like we talked about in our illustration. Now, there is a lot of talk in the world, maybe even in the church sometimes, that we just need to follow our heart. (laughs) Ashley laughs. Now, knowing what we know about the heart, is that wise? No, that is not wise. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a... He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So then that leads us to question three. Is the heart aware of this? Is the heart aware of how devastated its condition is? What do we see? This is an easy one. It's a yes or no question. No. No. Why? Because it's so filled with deception. It's the most excellent deceiver. It's easily deceived. It's easily deceived even when it's at its best. It can be deceived by people in the church. It deceives itself with worthless religion. So with a heart so filled with deception, how can it understand the precariousness of its condition? So then that leads us to question four. What's the highest calling of the heart? Anyone? 
this is too hard this time of the morning. Wouldn't it be easier to talk with me if I sat up there? You know, I sat there and just like, come have coffee with Sarah. Okay, so just to remind you that the highest call of our heart is to love God. And not just with a little part of it, not just with some of it, but with all of it. So we've got this massive, eternal gulf between what my heart really is and what I'm called to. I'm called to love God. And so does God see that predicament? Yeah. Yeah, he sees it. Not only does he see it, he searches the heart, and he searches the heart for the purpose of repayment. So, the next question, what's the greatest need of the human heart? We looked at this from two perspectives. The first perspective we addressed was, what is the need of the heart and who's responsible to meet it? And what do we see the need of the heart is? To be cleansed. That's right, to be made new, to be circumcised, to have all that's wrong with it cut away. And who's responsible to do that? We are. God puts the responsibility for that um, squarely on our shoulders. Um, But then we looked at it from a second perspective, and this is where we started to get some hope, that at the same time that our heart has this desperate condition, this high call, this desperate need, and this huge responsibility, at the same time God comes alongside and he says, I will do it. He will do what we are unable to do for ourselves. And so we have to admit our inability. And we can trust God's promise that he will do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. So then we looked at the question, what has God provided for our hearts? And we saw that those who are in Christ Jesus have a new heart. And so now we need to starve out that flesh that just loves itself, and we need to feed our new heart. And what does he give us to feed our new heart? He gives us his word, right? He's given us the Bible. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. God's design is that there would be full contact between our heart and his word. Okay, so that's our review, and we are going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about pride. Okay, so pride in the heart. I'm sure everybody's really glad they got up at the hour that they did to come and talk about pride, right? All right, so we're going to talk about a prideful heart. We're going to talk about the danger to which pride exposes the heart. Now... Hang with me here. I don't know about you, but when I think about pride, I think this is changing. But a lot of times my first flinch isn't to think about me. Okay, true confessions. Now, don't get me wrong. It's I know I am prideful, but I'm just not the first one I think of when I think of pride, which would just be proof that I'm prideful, right? Now, think for a minute. You probably have an idea of what pride looks like, of what arrogance looks like. If you think of an arrogant person, it's probably not someone you like to be around. Probably it's not somebody you necessarily respect very much. See, pride is a lot easier to identify in someone else than it is to see in ourselves, than it is even to define. 
And we can easily define, we can fall into this where we define a sin in terms that describe somebody else and not ourselves. Um, But we've just got done reviewing the condition of our hearts and we know how content our heart would be just to stay in that place of deception, of thinking that pride is somebody else's problem. And so we have to watch out for that wrong kind of thinking. So I have some questions to ask us that are going to help us make sure that we're defining pride correctly, that we're seeing pride in our own hearts. And this is from 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss. Um, I'm going to read just a a few of these. She's got pages of them. Um, But the first is, are you quick to find fault with others? How about, do you give undue time and attention an effort to your physical apparent appearance, you know, your hair, your makeup, your figure, your clothes. Or are you proud that you don't waste time on that? <laughs> See, it can go both ways, right? I could be really proud, for example, of how disciplined I am. I keep a tight schedule, I get a lot accomplished, or I might be one of those who looks at those kind of people and just be so proud that I'm so laid back. <laughs> right? See, it's pride either way. How about are you argumentative? Do you generally think that your way is the right way or the only way or at least the best way? Um, are you touchy? Do you have a sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense? Do you try to leave a better impression of others, an impression of yourself, than is really true? Would the people at church be shocked by how you act at home? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God or others? Not just in generalities, but in specifics. Are you excessively shy? Okay, busted. Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Ouch. Are you a perfectionist? Do you tend to be controlling? Do you frequently interrupt people when they're speaking? Do others, anybody else in your life, ever feel like they can never measure up? They just can never please you. Do you complain? Are you concerned about what others think about you? How about this? Do you neglect prayer and the word? When's the last time you said these words? I was wrong. Please forgive me. Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone you know? (laughs) Okay, so, ouch. Um, has your picture of arrogant changed? Your picture of pride changed? Are you now the poster child for pride in your mind's eye? See, it's something we need to be reminded of. Pride is something we all need to be on the lookout for. So let's look at God's concern for pride in the heart. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. This is Moses giving instructions to Israel regarding a king someday. And... You might even want to mark on your outline, this reference would be another really good reference for 
the review that we did where it says, what has God provided for our hearts? Because I really love how it ties together pride and the word. We're going to start reading in verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord has given you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Now listen to this. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, For shall he great, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. Who's going to write it? The king. The king is going to write down the law for himself. He's going to write it on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He's going to make sure he gets it right. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, how? By carefully, carefully observing all the words of this laws of this law and these statutes. Why? That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Do you see how intentional God's plan was for him to be interacting with the word? Not just this passive exposure to it. It's not a casual exposure. It's not an occasional exposure. He's writing for himself in the presence of the priest, and it's going to be with him every day. And he needs to be growing in the fear of the Lord, and he needs to be obeying it. See, and the reason why is because it's the word that's going to prevent him from lifting up his heart above his countrymen from thinking somehow that because I'm the king I'm better than the rest of you he needs his word close to his heart so that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everybody else has to live by he has to live by the same standard see the king of Israel was on the same level ground as everybody else and it was the word of God God's revelation of himself that would do that leveling The great leveler for all of us is the word of God. The word is what would prevent him from lifting his heart high above others. Now, we all have a tendency to exempt ourselves from some standard that's placed on us, as if there's some kind of exception for us. Right? I mean, I'm the mom. Right? Yeah. But what we need is to be continually exposed to the word of God at a heart level to prevent us from lifting our hearts up above others, to prevent us from excluding ourselves from some standard. Okay. Now go ahead and turn over to Hosea. And if you're not very familiar with where Hosea is, it comes right after Daniel. Okay, I have a recommendation for you. If you struggle to find your way around the Bible, 
I'm going to be perfectly honest. When I start trying to look up some book, like pretty much anything that comes after Daniel, I've got this little song in my head that's on the We Sing Bible tape. All right? Roseanne knows it. I think she taught it to my kids. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Okay, good, Hosea. And you can just stop when you get to the book. So go buy yourself We Sing Bible and learn the books of the Bible. All right. Lots of other cute songs on there, too. Not all of them are necessarily good theology or good doctrine, so be discerning, but that one could be really helpful. All right. Why did I say all that? Okay, we're in Hosea 13. And this is a really clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel during the time of the exodus and wilderness wandering. So um, Hosea is a prophet. This is a long time after they've come out of the wilderness. They're in the land. It's the time of the divided kingdom. So God is looking back and describing his relationship with them. And he says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And then he kind of does a pronoun shift. Instead of talking directly to them, now he's talking about them, talking about Israel. And he says, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, uh uh-oh, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. And you know what? He even warned them against this back in Deuteronomy 8. He warned them. So do you see how dangerous a prideful heart is? It leads to forgetfulness, divine forgetfulness. See, we forget God. And none of us are exempt from that. There is this inherent danger in our satisfaction with being comfortable. We've got God's provision. We've been blessed. We're satisfied. Watch out. We have to watch out right there that our hearts don't become lifted up, that we don't become prideful. Because that is when the heart is tempted to become proud, and then we forget God. See, there is never a day when we won't have to watch out for that. None of us are exempt from that temptation. Now, you know, it's easy for all of us to remember God when things are hard, right? Relationships, money, our health. See, those trials help us see our need for the Lord. But what can we do? What can you do? What can I do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're comfortable? You see, it's what we've been talking about all along. We have to bring our hearts to meet with God in his word. See, God is the only one who can keep us mindful of our constant, ongoing need for himself. And he does that through his word. So in Hosea, we saw one way that pride might be shown in our lives. We can forget God. But when we find ourselves using the excuse of busyness for forgetting God, for not reading the word, for not praying, for not meeting with God. Do you feel convicted of pride? See, maybe not, because that's kind of what's tricky about rooting pride out of our lives. It actually has a lot of faces. And and it can be hard to always recognize necessarily what's going on behind the sin. 
So we're going to look at some of those different faces of pride in the word. Um, and that's going to help us better understand how we can do battle with pride. So turn to Second Chronicles 26. This week I learned how to say the name of this king. According to my book, who knows if it's right. We're going to learn about King Uzziah. Now, if you are not in the habit of reading through your Bible, I just am so excited for you to get to some of these history books. You know, some of these would really make great movies. All right, so we're going to read in Second Chronicles 26. You can see there we're going to jump a little bit, but we're going to um, start in verse 1, and it says, All the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. Verse 4 He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the sight of the Lord. It says he continued to seek God. And as long as he did, God prospered him. And then verses 6 through 15 describe all kinds of victories and accomplishments. And then it tells us why. Verse 7 says, God helped him. And then down in verse 15, he says um, that his fame spread afar. Why? For he was marvelously helped. Who helped him? God helped him, right? He was marvelously helped until he was strong. So he was marvelously helped by God. He was successful until what happened? Yeah, he became strong. And when he became strong, verse 16, his heart was so proud. Remember, pride is the overflow of the heart. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy 8 and in Hosea 13. Success is dangerous to our hearts. Isn't it funny? Because we want it. We want comfort. and We want satisfaction. We just want an easy life. It's really easy to let that compete with our affections for the Lord, to want that more than we want holiness. But God's word says it's dangerous. Verse 16, it says, When he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Um, And he entered the temple of the Lord uh, to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act? How is that being unfaithful to the Lord? Okay, this is where it would make a great movie. Azariah the priest entered after him and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, like that, 80 valiant priests entered the temple and they opposed Uzziah the king and they said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will have no honor from the Lord your God. And Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord because he overstepped the boundaries of authority that God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him. He granted him success. He granted him victories on every front. But the service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't for the king to take. Burning incense wasn't a bad thing. 
But Isaiah was not qualified to do it. So how about us? Are you ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to you? Do we ever get tempted just to kind of work around our boss, our parents, our husband? You know, just assume that they'd be okay with us just deciding that for ourselves rather than humbling ourselves and going to that teacher, that boss, that parent, that husband, maybe a small group leader, maybe an elder, and asking for their leadership for their guidance, for their permission. This is really, really convicting for me because lots of time, this is slow. You know, this isn't real efficient. And I can find myself caring more about being efficient than honoring God. But see, that's pride. That's pride. Maybe Isaiah thought he was entitled because he was king. And the Lord hadn't withheld any other privileges from him. Why shouldn't he take the lead in worship too? But again, he wasn't entitled. Do you ever do that? You know, it's really easy to have a sense of entitlement, isn't it? Like, I'm entitled. I I have a right to some me time, to respect. How about just a little appreciation, right? Like, all I want is just like... Like, just for you to notice. See, here's what helps me see it in my heart. It's how I react right here when I'm not treated the way I want. Maybe someone in my home, someone I live with is a little thoughtless. Maybe someone's rude. A customer, a clerk, a driver. See, we live in a culture that says, you deserve a break today. You know, you deserve just fill in the blank. Whatever you want, time alone, respect, fulfillment, Retirement, you know, all of those, thinking that we deserve them, that's pride. Because we think that what we want is more important than what God has called us to do. To die to ourselves and to follow Christ. Okay, how about laziness? Now this could definitely come from a sense of entitlement, right? Because I think I'm entitled, you know, to to, to my time. So what might laziness look like in our lives? Well, could be overindulgence in sleep, entertainment, maybe TV, movies, games. How about computer time? Can we groan together on that one? You know, reading blogs, Facebook, email. Not that any of those things are bad. I'm going to say that again. Okay, I am not telling you that, that these things are necessarily bad. Sleep is not bad. But when we're talking about the computer, it is so easy to just mindlessly, we get on there to do something that maybe should take 10 minutes, and mindlessly, we just drift away and we click the link and we, oh, that's an hour later. Man, we've just wasted what God has given us. See, laziness is putting anything ahead of our responsibilities. Again, I'm going to say it again. Many times the things we battle, when we battle laziness, which is a sense of enti- comes from a sense of entitlement, which is just an evidence of pride, many of these things we battle are not bad in and of themselves. But any time we put what we want to do ahead of what God has given us to do, spending time with him, helping our husbands, spending time with um, roommates, 
caring for our home, our families, serving the body of Christ, about reaching out to the lost. Anytime we're putting ourselves first, that's pride. Now, here's a helpful thing to see. And we can see it in this passage, how one sin easily leads to another. Pride in the heart can lead to that sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority, or it might lead to laziness. You know, and that's a bad thing. It's kind of like sin has partners. It brings all its friends in with it, doesn't it? But on the side where we're fighting sin, here's the good news. If we can actually identify the root and start to see what's behind the sin and go after the right sin and repent of that sin, we might actually make ground against all of these friends that that pride wants to bring in. So we've seen a couple faces of pride, forgetting God, a sense of entitlement, overstepping our boundaries. Um, And so if we go after the root and we repent of pride, we actually might be doing battle with those other things as well. And so that's good news. So because one sin is often tied to another, we need to train ourselves and we need to help one another and we need to ask others to help us to make those connections, to see that sin behind the sin so we see our hearts. Okay, let's look at some other faces of pride. Turn over to 2 Chronicles 32. And we're going to read about King Hezekiah. And I've been reading about Hezekiah and Isaiah in my reading plan. And I just want to encourage you not to take your only opinion of Hezekiah from this passage, because Hezekiah does some really good things too. But but he, he does he's not at his best here. Okay. Reading in verse twenty four. In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. The NIV says that he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. And it tells us why. Because his heart was proud. See, there's another face of pride. He didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. But, you know, we can fail to respond to God's kindness, too. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Are we quick to repent? Or do you just hate admitting that sin? Do you ask forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or when your sin has affected someone else in some way? Or do we ignore it? And think everybody should just move on. You know, forget about it. That was yesterday. See, that's a failure to repent. And that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. That's evidence of a proud heart. Now, how about contentment? See, discontentment, complaining, again, those are failures to respond to God's kindness. It's a failure to recognize God's kindness to us in every circumstance. You know, a complaining attitude is so easy to fall into. How about your appearance? How hard you work? How tired we are? You know, it can be really tempting to complain about unbelieving family members or difficulties with the people we work with or the people we live with. Money. How about self-pity? You know, is that just not a catch-all? Like, my heart doesn't know how else to sit. I'll just fall into self-pity. That's kind of one of my favorites. (laughs) That's just disgusting because God has been so kind to me. Why do I have to feel... 
what reason do I have to feel any self-pity? But we just get this sense that like, somehow life just needs to be different. It would just be better if it were just different, somehow. Okay. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. It's discontent because on a heart level, we think we deserve something different, something better, something different than what we have right now. And we don't really believe that these circumstances are God's good for me. They're God's best for me. See, I don't be- if I'm not believing that, I am failing to respond to his kindness. And Second Chronicles 32 says, that is evidence of pride in my heart. Now, look at the consequences of that pride at the end of verse 25. It says, therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Now, do we recognize the impact that our pride, our sin, will have on others? That they may experience consequences for our sin? See, 26, though, gives us some encouragement. It says, however, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who humbled his heart? Yeah, Hezekiah did. And both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, they all humbled their hearts so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that gives us encouragement that God is willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope of believers who live now in time after the cross. This was before Jesus had come and died on the cross. We live after the cross. And so we have hope that Christ bore all of God's wrath against our sin at the cross. And he gives us a new heart so that we can repent of pride, so that we can humble our hearts. Okay, so we've been looking at pride and some of the ways that it can kind of try to get its foot into the door of our hearts. Um, tempting us to forget God, often through success and blessings, um, not staying within our authority, a sense of entitlement, laziness, not responding to God's kindness, not repenting, complaining, being discontent. So we're going to look at uh, one more way that um, pride may be displayed in our lives in the book of Obadiah. And you see you have a reference from um, Jeremiah 49 as well. These are really similar passages. They are both prophecies against Edom. And Edom was a country that were descendants of Esau. And Esau was Jacob's twin brother. And Jacob is the guy who got renamed Israel. So Israel are the descendants of Jacob. Edom are the descendants of his twin brother. And you would think that would make them friends. You would hope. But... As so often happens in families, there's just a lot of animosity between these two countries. And uh, Edom really likes um, rejoicing at seeing Israel get attacked. And so God is prophesying against Edom. Um, And so we're going to see another really serious face of pride. In Obadiah verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. What does arrogance in the heart do? It deceives. That's right. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? So what face does pride wear here? It says the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. We saw last week, and we reviewed it this morning, the heart 
is already easily deceived. The heart is already an excellent deceiver. So to add to our difficulties, pride in our heart will only deceive us more. Now, how are the Edomites deceived? God says he's going to bring them down, and they persist in their self-confidence and their self-reliance. They say, who's going to bring me down to earth? See, proof of an arrogant heart, of a deceived heart, is refusing to believe God's words instead of our own opinions, our own assessment. Now, how might this show up in our hearts? All right. How many of you pray about decisions you need to make? Right? That's a good thing. Maybe not every decision, but it's a big decision or it's a challenging situation. You don't know what to do. You need wisdom, and so you pray, and that's good. We should pray. We should pray. And we need to praise God that through Christ, he has made a way for us to come before a throne of grace. So, why do I bring up prayer when we're looking at a warning against the deceptiveness of a prideful heart? Well, it's important that we understand that there is a right way to use prayer. When we humble ourselves, and we thank God and we ask God for guidance to direct us to biblical principles that are going to help us in our decision. We ask for wisdom to know maybe who we should go to to seek wise counsel. See, prayer is a great time to examine our motives and to admit how easily deceived we are, to admit how easily we persuade ourselves to do what we want, and just to admit that, to confess sin, to remember the cross. Remember the cross in prayer. See, prayer is an amazing gift God has given us. It is a time to draw near to the creator of the universe. But what happens when a prideful heart intersects with prayer? I'm not talking about the prideful heart that's been broken. That I mean, that should be all of us, right? I'm not talking about the heart that's now coming in repentance to confess pride. Now, what I mean is a prideful heart that is not repentant. See, that heart might pray, but it doesn't humble itself before God. It doesn't examine itself with God's word. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't even want wise counsel. Now, see, if I pray about a decision that I need to make when I'm in that condition, that unrepentant, proud condition... I may very well deceive myself and come away from prayer having convinced myself that what I actually want is God's leading. See, isn't that convenient? Even if it's contrary to God's word? See, that's what the Edomites did. God said he'd make them small. And they said, no, no one's going to bring me down. They didn't believe God. Now that is a serious threat. Do you see how dangerous that prideful heart is? Because if I convince myself in prayer to do what I really want to do in the first place, that's very hard to challenge, isn't it? If one of you has concerns about my decisions and you come to me and you, want, you ask me some good questions and you bring some biblical principles, what, I'm, I'm going to just shut you down because I'm going to tell you I prayed about it. <laughs> right? That's my trump card. You can't challenge my decision. I prayed about it. Now, please understand my point here. 
There are plenty of times when we say that we have prayed, and we have prayed in a humble way, in a biblical way. And so we're going to hope all things about each other. We're not going to just go and apply this to someone else, right? (laughs) See, when that's been the case, if we have prayed in a humble way, in a repentant way, then we're going to be open to those questions, and we're going to want other people's biblical counsel. But let's be careful about ourselves and how we pray and how we make decisions. And we need to ask God, and we need to ask others to help us see where we might be deceiving ourselves. See, this deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to do battle with because the nature of deception is that it's deceptive, (laughs) right? See, we just can't see it. And so the only way to battle a foe that we can't see is with truth. It's with the truth of God's word and with the help of the body of Christ. See, this is how discipline one and discipline two and discipline three all flow together. See, there's protection in shepherding our hearts with God's word, and there's protection in being concerned with helping one another shepherd our hearts with God's word, asking for that help. Okay, we have seen a lot of different faces of pride. And so where these expose pride in our hearts, we need to confess, we need to repent, we need to seek forgiveness of those we've sinned against in our pride. So we need to deal with that pride when it's exposed. Because pride exposes our heart to danger. Now another way to think about shepherding our hearts in that is to ask God, God, show me where pride exists. Show me where I tend to be arrogant. Show me where I have a sense of entitlement. And God, give me eyes to see. See, we have to ask him because it's very easy for us to see others' pride, but not our own. That's the effect of sin on us. It blinds us to our own pride, and it makes us able to see it in somebody else. So what do we do when we see others being arrogant? You know, that is a great opportunity, again, to go to the Lord and say, Lord... Do you see how concerned I am about her arrogance and not my own? God, make me nearsighted to see my sin before I can see anybody else's. Help me to see the log in my eye and repent of that so that I'm ready to lovingly help somebody else with the speck in their eye. So we repent of pride and we humble ourselves. Now we're going to take a look at what God's word says about humility. Turn to 1 Peter 5. I was going over this lesson with Jamie Siegel, who will be teaching it on Wednesday. And she said, oh, we got to get to New Testament. So I have a couple quotes for you, just because I, I like how they did help define pride. William Law was, as Anne Angstead would say, an old dead guy from the 18th century. Um, He says, humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. A.W. Tozer says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has accepted God's estimate of himself, of his own life. In himself, nothing. But in God, everything. He finishes it by saying, he knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. I think that could be misconstrued. You know, we don't want to be like, oh, I don't care. That could be prideful too. But he, he, he's concerned with God's opinion of him. Okay, let's read First Peter 5. We're going to start in the middle of verse 5. It says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility 
toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, it's interesting that he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. See, humility has to be lived out in relationships. Left to myself, I am not going to see my need for humility. And there are a lot of ways that people around us humble us, aren't there? What about when we're criticized, for example? Maybe we're rebuked, we're admonished, we're exhorted. (laughs) Man, is it not easy to feel hurt, misunderstood, defensive? Yeah, that monster inside that just really wants to help you understand. But see, that's pride. As if feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing where we need to grow. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be careful with how we go to each other, right? Okay, verse 6 then continues. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then he tells us, How to humble ourselves in verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You It's humbling just to stop and realize that he calls us to humble ourselves by by accepting the care he has for us. That it's actually pride to reject his care for us. T.J. Mahaney wrote this about this verse in his book, Humility. Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble ourselves. Where? Verse 6, under God's mighty Hand. See, what we, we need to remember when we need to humble ourselves before a boss or a husband or a parent, when we need to confess our sin, when we've been criticized or rebuked, we have to look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for us. He's the one we're humbling ourselves to. He's the one who's at work for our good. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and our Savior. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to Christ. It's crying out and admitting how prideful we are and thanking God and praising God that at the cross God poured out all of his wrath against all of our pride, and he set us free so we are no longer slaves to that pride. And that makes repentance a joy. That makes repentance a joy because repentance becomes a place of refreshment, a place of remembering that Jesus is our only hope, and he is a more than sufficient, abundant hope for cultivating a heart of humility. And that being near him, being right with him, is better. It's better than anything pride will ever offer us. All right, turn to Colossians 3. 
Not only will a humble heart draw us near to our Savior, but it also draws us near to one another. Colossians 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Paul starts with our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And then he says, okay, because of that, because of who you are now, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And we're going to look at a couple of these things. And a lot of these things, when you see humility in the New Testament, they show up together. The first thing to notice, I already pointed out to you, is that the command to be humble is grounded in who we are in Christ. That's where it comes from. If we are going to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we have to feed our hearts with a steady diet of the gospel. We need to view the gospel as the precious jewel that it is. We must never tire of looking at all of its beautiful facets. In fact, the more we behold its beauty, the more we must be enthralled by it. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes the gospel. And then the second thing that we don't want to miss is that humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity between believers, and that displays the work of the gospel. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And see, isn't that what we want? We've been hearing um, these sermons from Scott on Luke 12 and 19 where he's reminded us we're not our own. We're his slaves. And he has entrusted us with the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for our sins so that we can walk in newness of life. We can walk in humility. And we can live with one another in such a way that the world says, Wow! Look at how they love each other. That's not normal. See, they're not just serving themselves, they're serving each other. And they're joyful about it. And they're humble about it. And they're repentant when they, when they sin against each other. See, that kind of living in our homes and in our church adorns the gospel. So Paul writes to Titus. Turn over to Philippians now. We're going to finish with this passage right before Colossians. Philippians 2. This is the perfect passage for us to wrap up with because it brings us right back to our Savior. And and he's the only place we can go to cultivate that humble heart. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See, that's what we're called to be. Not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love and unity with the body of Christ. See, there's a similarity to Colossians 3, this appeal. 
to unity and love. But what does that require? Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I want you to listen to what's coming. We're going to read about Jesus. And this is a passage that I am pretty confident that everybody in this room is familiar with. So we want to be really careful. Don't miss what it's going to tell us about our Savior. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, we grasp, like, right? We like to grasp, take hold of what we want, but Jesus didn't grasp. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself as if becoming a man hadn't humbled him enough already. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is how we receive his enabling grace, the grace to turn from pride to humility, to love, because Jesus went to the cross. And he gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty for our sin and to break the power of sin over us and to give us new life in a love relationship with himself and with his people. That's the power of the gospel. So that is some teaching from the word of God about pride. I hope that's encouraging for you. I hope that if you feel convicted, challenged, that that you don't stay there, that you take it back to the cross. And remember what Christ has done. All right, I want to talk about our homework for just a minute, and then we'll have some time with our discussion groups. Today, we'll finish discussing the page that says personal evaluation of your heart's interaction with the word. We'll talk about that in discussion group today, and then leave that with your discussion group leader before you leave. And then your assignment for next time, you got this as you came in, as you start your Bible reading plan. Again, your reminder, your primary assignment is to choose a reading plan and to work at, as you go through the year, you work at that reading plan, is to actually have that be a time where you are meeting with God. And so do this assignment then prayerfully, and I want you to pay a special attention to question three. It says, as you read, are you aware of any tendencies to play leapfrog over your heart to think of others who you wish were reading what you were reading? Okay, that's what? Pride. That's pride. Okay. And so um, as you go through this, you might, be, you might think of other areas where you have that tendency to play leapfrog over your heart, and you might want to pray and just consider how those might be pointing to pride. All right. I'm going to pray, and we'll go to discussion group. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would be pleased to bring fruit from your word, from our time together. I pray that in the discussion groups, Lord, there would be a strong sense of fellowship in your spirit together, of loving one another and encouraging one another. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are faithful to finish what you have begun in our lives. Make us people who are diligent to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen.